All right. Uh, today, we are uh, picking it up in uh, the story in Genesis 24. And last week we had a, uh, an abbreviated class. And uh, we did what none of you thought I could ever possibly do. Right? We got through a whole chapter and we did it in, what, 20 minutes? <laughs> so I just, I want you all to remember that <laughs> the next time I go an hour and a half, <laughs> that I am capable of doing better. Uh, so anyway, we did look at most of chapter 23 last week, which is the story of Abraham's efforts to secure a place to bury his wife. Uh, and... Uh, and we really didn't uh, do the chapter uh, complete justice, but we did glean a, a few principles and and thoughts from the from the story. <coughs> and uh, but I am anxious to get on into chapter 24. I've been waiting a long time to get to this chapter, uh, so uh, we are going to we are going to uh, begin chapter 24 today. <coughs> so before we read uh, our passage for today, though, let's go back and. And just think a little bit about last week. What, in a little bit of time that we did have, what do you remember that we talked about last week? Okay. Okay. Why was that so important to him? So that this was his home. This was his permanent place. Yeah. He wasn't going to take it back from where he was. This was the last day he was there. Yeah. So really, that whole lengthy negotiation—it really is kind of interesting. That we only get a verse about her death, and we get uh, less than a verse verse about his mourning, and then we get virtually an entire chapter about the negotiations for a burial plot. And but the point of that is Abraham's faith, Abraham's confidence. And the promise of God that this land was going to be the land that his descendants would have and he wanted to have his wife buried there on that land. And so he seeks to have uh, a piece of land that is deeded to him in perpetuity forever uh, as a memorial and a testimony. Uh, and actually, we still we do believe that even to this day, we know that place. There's actually, of course, now a mosque built over that spot right now. But we believe that even to this day, we know the burial place of Abraham and Sarah and Rebecca. So, anyway, what else? Well, you and I discussed this after class. What I was wondering was why Abraham didn't demand the land, saying something to the effect of, well, God said this was going to be our land, so give it to me, you know, or something like that, or... I don't have to pay money for it. You know, God gave it to me. You know, those, those kinds of things. But I wondered uh, since then if it, if it was a matter of timing or him un- Abraham understanding. You know, this isn't. It's not. I don't know how God's going to do it. Maybe yeah. I have to buy it all. Maybe yeah. you know, he didn't have all of God's plan and know what was going to come up. I think that's part of it. He, he really doesn't know how God plans to do this, and. Uh, and I think part of it, too, is this issue that we talked about last week about how Abraham functions in the world, that he's in the world, but he's not of the world. And 
and uh, and so he he functions in the world in a manner that that gives respect and honor to people who are who are of the world. <laughs> okay, so uh, so we see all this this uh, respect that he shows, the humility that he shows, the willingness to operate within their norm. <laughs> you know, this is how they do business, and so he's willing to do that. Uh, just as a way of expressing honor and respect to them. And, uh, and I think it's a, it's a real lesson to me because I think oftentimes as Christians we can become very, uh, very arrogant in our attitude towards the world and people in the world. And I don't think that reflects either the love of Christ uh, or their dignity as, even though they're not saved, as people who are made in the likeness of God. And, and those things need to be taken into consideration when we interact with the world and that's why this particular story is so striking to me is because it's an example I think Abraham is a classic example to us of what it means to be in the world but not of the world and uh, so I think he's a real example to us that is a hard one because we know that a lot of times they're not doing it right mm-hmm. whatever it is mm-hmm. and we know the right way to do it so yeah. it's easy to come up yeah. hey if you just straightened up then it would all work out yeah. Yeah, he, the, the thing that's really striking there is the respect that he has from him. You know, you are a mighty prince or a prince of God among us and he has this respect and it's because of how he has conducted himself for the uh, 50 years that he's walked there as a stranger in that land. Anything else? So so what do you think was the was the underlying attitude of the Canaanites? You say both parties had that. What do you What do you read there? Okay. <coughs> so you're saying they saw that and they detected that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure there was. Yeah. And as you say, we'll get to that some today as we look at <coughs> chapter 24. Okay. Anything else? I see you all got a lot out of 20, yeah. 20 minutes, didn't you? <laughs> you mentioned the uh, thing of moral prepare and how important yeah. remembering you to the issue of faith. Yeah. Yeah, that is so so vital that we that we remember the things that God has done and that we 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 establish that memory in ourselves and we inculcate that memory into our children and to our children's children, etc. The memory of what God has done. Because that becomes the foundation then for faith. We'll see that with Abraham here in chapter 4. His tremendous confidence that God was going to direct in this situation regarding securing a wife for Isaac. Uh, And some of that is just rooted in Abraham's experience of having walked with God these many years and having seen God direct in situation after situation after situation. So memory memory is a uh, a vital tool. In the issue of faith, you were going to say something. Yeah, it's very much similar to that. Is that the investment, like when they set markers, 
That was a no-no. Yeah. 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 Good point. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah, still a big thing, isn't it? Yeah, still a big issue. Yeah, it is. And I think personally, there are those who interpret scripture differently than I do on this, but I personally think it's still a big issue to God too. But uh, <coughs> well, let's go on to chapter twenty-four. Uh, and if you'll notice, uh, you look at chapter 24, you'll notice it's 67 verses long. It's the longest, I believe it's the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. Uh, one of the longer chapters in the Bible, as a matter of fact. And it's really kind of interesting that this, this one aspect of the whole Abraham Isaac story is devoted uh, or given so much, uh, uh, so much ink, so to speak, okay? It's, it's uh, it's interesting that this chapter is is uh, so long and and as I mentioned I, I love this story uh, uh, I don't know how many of you were in the class this is a long time back but a number of years ago we did a series of character sketches uh, we took a, I don't know a couple months or so and did character sketches through the through the scriptures one of them we did was Rebecca and we looked at this chapter and I and I. Uh, uh, I taught the chapter in one session, and I'm not going to try that again. <laughs> but but I remember, ever since that time, I just found this passage just so meaningful, and it's it's just it's uh, it's just loaded. It's loaded with with all kinds of stuff. Of course, one of the one of the most obvious things is it's it's really our first portrait of Rebecca, and it's and it's interesting that we get really more of a portrait of Rebecca than we do even of Sarah. And, and it's interesting. We, we don't know anything about how Abraham and Sarah met and got married. We don't know anything about that. But here we have this lengthy chapter that describes to us how, uh, how we find this wife uh, uh, for Isaac. And so it's, it's really interesting. It's kind of unique. Um, the chapter has uh, an, uh, just, uh, uh, of course, several crucial theological issues that it addresses. And one of them, of course, is the question of, of how is God going to protect uh, and how is God going to advance this plan of redemption that he has? Okay, He's got this plan of how he is going to redeem the world uh, through Abraham and through Abraham's descendants. And the question is, how is God going to protect that plan from being corrupted or defiled or interrupted in some way and how is he going to advance it okay and that's of course obviously a crucial theme that's going through the chapter here the other another crucial question that, that arises is is how is how is Abraham going to cooperate with that plan how is Abraham going to to work with God in accomplishing this purpose of redemption that God has through uh, through him and through his descendants so, there's also just a, just a number of practical areas that come up in this passage, just all kinds of them as you go through the story. And, of course, it's a lengthy chapter, so there's room for a lot of different issues to come up. But there's, there's issues about prayer. There's uh, issues about the providence of God. There's issues about faith. 
there's issues about God's will and how do we know God's will? How do we find God's will? There's issues about how do you choose a mate? And, you know, what are the what are the kind of things you think about, and what are the kind of things you do in choosing a mate? And issues related to that regarding marriage. So there's just all kinds of issues that come up in this chapter, okay? And and they do so in in a in a story that's just fun to read. <laughs> it's a, and it's a, it's an exciting story to read. It it is as you will see a bit repetitive, okay? And there's significance to that repetitive nature of the story, okay? And we'll talk about because he takes a he takes a lengthy description of what happens with the servant at the well and and, and that whole story and then then when the servant gets uh, to Rebecca's house, he tells the whole story over again, and it's almost it's almost word for word what you've already read, and it's a lengthy passage, so it's it's like he's just duplicating over again what you just read, and you go, why do I have to read all this again? Well, there's a reason for that, and there's significance to that that to me is exciting when I when I think about it. And so these are things that we're going to be thinking about, and there's also throughout the passage just a number of striking analogies. Uh, that as we read them, uh, we'll, we won't be able to pick up on all of them, but, but some of them are really striking. One I hope we'll get to today, uh, that we'll just get introduced to today, is the analogy between this whole story of the, of, of the servant going to find a bride for Isaac and the analogy to the question or to the, to the subject of evangelism. It's just a powerful illustration of what we do when we share the gospel of Christ with others. And uh, so, at any rate, it's just a passage I love and, and, and I hope I'm not raising your expectations higher than I'm, <laughs> than I'm able to, uh, to meet, but, but uh, hopefully the Lord will encourage and excite your heart with it as much as my heart has been excited for a number of years by this passage. Okay. And again, before we read it, I, I just want to point out too that that the structure of the passage is um, it's really designed so as to help us understand not just what happened, but to really help us understand the servant and what's going on with the servant in his mind and his heart as he's trying to fulfill the wishes of his master. And, And then also to really understand what's going on in Rebecca's heart and in Rebecca's mind, because she, of course, is really the she's really the point of the passage, and and the, the, the part of the purpose of the passage, as I mentioned, is to get a portrait of her. And to do that, we really the, the passage is structured in such a way that it forces us to think about what's going through her heart and what's going through her mind as she encounters this stranger at the well, and then as she hears his story. Uh, as she's uh, there in her home and she's hearing him recount the story and then the decision that she is forced to make uh, and and the question, the issue of what does she understand and what does she believe? And we have to remember that she is raised, this is a woman who is raised in a pagan household. Okay, These are people who are idol worshippers. Laban was an idol worshipper and we'll see that reflected in his behavior. Okay. That he's not behaving like a like a man of God ought to behave. All right, uh, we'll encounter that again in future stories too. But 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 Rebecca is. Why does God pick Rebecca? What's what's special about Rebecca that God says this is the woman that I want? And and the passage is structured to give us some 
to help us see things through Rebecca's eyes. Okay. And, and one of the things that's interesting about the passage is that the narrator, uh, through the, whole, the Holy Spirit, through the narrator, gives the story away at the very beginning. At the very beginning, he clues us in what the solution, what the, what the result, what the, con- what the end uh, product is going to be. But then he still takes, you know, 40 verses after that or however long after that to uh, actually more than that to, to, to tell us how the process unfolds. Okay? So the process is important. It's not just the result is important, but the process is important to us for some reason. And the passage is structured in such a way as, uh, as to emphasize that. So these are things that we want to think about and work through as we go through the chapter. And I'm not going to rush through this chapter, so however many lessons it takes us, we'll take that time uh, uh, because I think it's important and because I like the chapter. <laughs> so, uh, any rate. But today, uh, uh, I was hoping to get through the first 14 verses or so, but let's read a little bit more than that because I want to whet your appetites, okay? So, we'll read down, uh, oh, maybe uh, down to about verse uh, uh, 21 or even further than that. We'll see how far I, I read because I, I want you to get a little bit of context uh, ahead, but we won't take time to read the entire chapter because it's so lengthy. And so he starts out now, Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his house, uh, excuse me, the oldest of his household who had charge over all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things from his masters, of his masters in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at eventime the time when the women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, Drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, 
who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her, uh, to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all of his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, uh, so uh, going back to uh, to verse one, uh, we're introduced to the passage here just with this little uh, uh, remark about Abraham that he was old, that he was advanced in age, and that God had blessed him in every way, and that sets up the context, of course, for the story. Uh, the point is, of course, Abraham now is, uh, we'll discover in actually in the next chapter, in chapter 25, that these events that we're reading about in chapter 24 take place when Isaac is 40 years old. I, you know, uh, jokingly said here a couple of weeks ago that with Isaac we had a case of a failure to launch, okay, because uh, he's 40 years old and he's still not married. But really what we discover is that's not Isaac's problem <laughs> and that's not Isaac's fault. This has to do with Abraham and Abraham's responsibilities, okay? And if, if Isaac is 40 years old, then how old is Abraham at this point? Pardon? 140, okay, so he's getting up there now. He's still going to live for quite a while after this. But, of course, he doesn't know that, all right? So, he's getting old, he's getting advanced in years, and God has blessed him in every way, and he really has. The guy is wealthy, the guy's influential, uh, he's had military success, he's had political success, he's respected in the land, he's considered to be a mighty prince, even though he's a stranger, uh, He's had uh, he's he's uh, fathered two sons, uh, one by the flesh, of course, and the other by the promise. And he's seen this this son of the promise grown to adulthood now, and he's 40 years old. And he's just his life is just a life of uh, just a fulfillment and a blessing. But he still has one important job left to do. What is that? Because, pardon, the promise, okay? Still, the whole promise hangs on the issue of finding a wife, finding the right wife for Isaac, okay? And this is, within the context of the culture, this is Abraham's responsibility, okay? Uh, and, you know, we typically, most of us don't operate that way in our culture today where the parents... Uh, have the obligation or responsibility to find a spouse. After we read this chapter, we might think maybe that's a good idea. Maybe we ought to go back to that. Okay, uh, but uh, of course, there are still many places, uh, cultures in the world where it is practiced, and even some people here uh, in in the Western part, Western world, uh, still practice that to some degree. But but his responsibility is to find 
a wife for his son. Because unless he succeeds at this, all these blessings that he have mean nothing. Because it all ends right here. It all means nothing unless he can successfully accomplish this task, which is the task of finding the right spouse. It's not just that Isaac must be, needs to be married, but Isaac needs to be married to the right person. Okay? And that's, that's clearly implied in the passage. It's very clear, there's very clear strictures placed here. We don't do this, and we do do this, and we don't do this. Okay? And the point of that is that God had for Isaac a particular woman chosen. And now why he didn't just kind of just pick her up and bring her over and just drop her in Abraham's lap, I have no idea. Okay? But it's clear that God wanted Abraham, through his servant, to exercise discernment and faith in order to secure that wife. Okay? So, so that's what Abraham sets out to do. And he calls his servant to him. Okay? Now, what do we know about this servant? Okay? He's the oldest, and he's in charge of everything. Okay? What does that tell us about this guy? Okay? He's faithful, he's loyal, and he's also probably pretty smart. Right? Yes. The guy clearly has a personal, intimate relationship with God. And we'll, if we get time, we'll draw, begin to draw that out today. But it will become clear as the passage unfolds that he has, uh, either on his own or because of Abraham's influence, he has come to know Abraham's God. He knows him as Abraham's God. Okay, He understands, he, he kind of understands, he, do, you know, he doesn't call him his, his own God, although he is his God, but he, but he talks about him as Abraham's God. And of course, that's because he's serving Abraham and he's trying to accomplish a task for Abraham. But, but he's clearly a man of faith. He's clearly a very loyal, a very dedicated man. He's clearly a man of remarkable skill and intelligence. Because he's responsible for everything Abraham owns. And we know by now how much Abraham owns. Okay, He's got hundreds of people in his house. Uh, uh, he has uh, all kinds of wealth. He has all kinds of cattle and you know, all this sort of thing. And they're always traipsing all over the country and going this place and that place and digging wells and doing... And this guy's in charge of all of it. You know? It's kind of the picture that we get of Pharaoh and Joseph when you get uh, back to the latter part of Genesis and, and Pharaoh just kind of gives all the responsibility to Joseph and he just lets Joseph take care of him. Why? Because of Joseph's great wisdom and, and, and uh, skill and that sort of thing. So this is the kind of guy that Abraham selects to go find a wife for his, uh, for his son. Okay. So he calls him to him and, and, he, and he wants him to, to uh, swear an oath. Okay? And, uh, and the thing, one of the things that stands out to us about this oath is its profound solemnity, how solemn, how important this oath is. And there are two things that reflect that uh, in the passage. One of them is he says, please place your hand under my thigh. And then he says, I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. OK, now, when he says uh, when he says, uh, please place your hand under my thigh. OK, that's kind of it's kind of oblique. He's just he's kind of being discreet there. But basically what he's asking the guy to do is to put his hand 
under his generative organs. Okay? And there's significance of that. There's profound significance of that. You know, it makes our skin crawl and we think, oh, this is weird or whatever. There's actually only two places in all of Scripture where this is done. It's done here and then it's done again later with another one of the patriarchs later in Genesis. We don't have any other record of this kind of an oath being sworn uh, anywhere else in secular literature or whatever. So it's really unique to Scripture and it's really unique to the patriarchs. Okay, But the significance of it appears to be that what... You know, just like when we, I don't know if they even do this anymore because, you know, we live in such a post-Christian era. But, you know, in the old days, you know, you go into court and you swear on a Bible, you put the Bible out there and you put your hand. Why would they have people do that? Okay, okay. So what's the significance of the Bible? Why not Shakespeare's... uh, Pardon? Okay, okay. And so the point is, when you put your hand on the Bible and you swear an oath, in one degree, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, I'm taking responsibility here in view of or with regard to the authority and the reliability of this book, the importance and the significance of this book. So when Abraham asks his servant to place his hand under his thigh, so to speak, what what he's doing is he's calling the servant's attention to the promise of descendants. And what he's saying is the significance of this oath that you are taking pertains to the promise of God that I would have descendants, that they would issue forth from my body and that I would have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as numerous as the sands of the seashore. Okay. So what he's doing is he's, he's causing the servant to recognize that he's taking a responsibility on him that pertains to this whole issue of the promise of God. And that his faithfulness to do as he said has to do with whether or not the promise of God will be fulfilled and completed. Okay. So, so he's communicating to the servant, you know, all this time this promise of God has been to Abraham. And it's been Abraham's promise. But now, as Abraham gives the servant this responsibility, what he's saying to the servant is, okay, now it's not just on my shoulders now. Now it's on your shoulders too. And you have a solemn responsibility to do this job as I tell you to do it in order that the promise of God can be fulfilled. Okay. So that's the first thing that indicates to us how solemn this oath is that the servant is about to take. The second thing is that he says, I'm going to, you're going to swear by the Lord, that's Yahweh, that's Abraham's covenant God, who also is, by definition, the God of heaven and the God of earth. So, so you are taking this oath. You're promising to do this thing that I'm asking you to do. You're promising to do it with regard to and in consideration of the promise that God has given to me. And you are, you are undertaking this task with consideration that this is a task that you are doing under the authority and under the direction of God himself. And you answer to God on this issue. Whether you do this job right, you answer to God on this issue. Okay. Now, the only reason Abraham could do that is because that's how Abraham felt about it. The only reason Abraham could do that is, to be, is because to Abraham, carrying out this task of finding the right mate for his son 
and seeing that his son married the right woman and that she, in fact, he, that he even, in fact, got married at all and had children, Abraham felt profound responsibility to this with regard to the promise and with regard to his obligations to God. And that, that grows out of two things. One, obviously, it grows out of God's promise to Abraham specifically that he would have descendants. Okay? Uh, but it also grows out of that mandate that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter uh, 2, right? Okay. It goes all the way back to that mandate, mandate in Genesis chapter 2 that God has given to mankind the responsibility to raise up a righteous seed. And we have pursued that through as we've gone through the story of Genesis so far and we'll continue to pursue that idea or that thought that, that what God wanted when He created the heavens and the earth, what God wanted, His real ultimate objective was to fill the earth with billions and billions of people who would worship and love and adore and enjoy Him forever. That's what He wanted to do. And of course, Adam and Eve threw a monkey wrench into that. And immediately, God stepped in to remedy the situation. And His purpose has always been, from Adam and Eve onward, that we would produce a righteous seed, a, a, a population of righteous people who would worship and enjoy Him forever. And so this is a responsibility that Abraham feels. And he has this sense, this deep, profound sense of the importance of securing a wife for his son in order that he can fulfill the original mandate as well as fulfill the promise of God uh, that's given to him to produce uh, this, uh, these descendants through whom ultimately all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Okay. So this is what Abraham is, is doing and this is why this oath is so important. Okay. Now the oath really has two parts to it. Right? It, has a, it has a prohibitive negative. Okay. Uh, and then it has a positive. What is the prohibitive? Uh, well, actually, that's, that comes out in the explanation later. In the oath itself, do not take a wife from the Canaanites. Okay? So he says, here I am. I'm living among the Canaanites. But when you take a wife, you don't, for my son, you don't take a wife from the Canaanites. Okay? So that's the prohibitive. And then what's the, what's the positive directive that he gives him? Okay, so he's, he's to go back to Peyton Haran. He's to go back to Abraham's home, to Abraham's, uh, to Abraham's country, to Abraham's family. And he's to find a wife from among Abraham's relatives. Okay. What's going on there? Why does he want Isaac to have a wife from among his relatives? Doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Chapter 22, he's told by someone that his 
children. Yes. So he now he knows that he, there's he family back there. There are two things I think that are at stake here. One is that you remember clear back in uh, uh, clear back in the garden, the Lord said to Eve, "There's going to be a righteous seed, and there's going to be an unrighteous seed. There's going to be a righteous line, and there's going to be an unrighteous line." And when we got up to Genesis chapter six, do you remember what one of the causes of the flood was? Was what? What was the righteous line doing? They were marrying among the unrighteous. They were indiscriminately marrying and they were marrying among the unrighteous. And the situation got so critical that was one of the two reasons why God had to send the flood. Because the righteous line was marrying outside of the righteous line. Now, Abraham is determined that his son is going to marry in the faith. Now, Admittedly, as far as he knows, they're still idol worshippers. Now we're—I don't want to give the—don't want to give the farm away here, but—but but, uh, that's his perception at this point. Okay, but—but but still, she is of the righteous line. And you remember when we were looking at that passage in chapter 22, we noticed how how the Haran line and the Nahor uh, the Nahor line got merged. Okay. Through Milka, okay. So they got merged into one, and then ultimately, as we detected back then, those two lines of the descendants of Terah they get merged into Abraham's line, okay. So, so the three sons of of of, uh, of Terah, Abraham, Nahor, and, and Haran, all of them end up united as one line after Isaac marries Rebekah, okay. So. So the, the the first issue is that Abraham is determined that that Isaac will marry within the righteous line, or i.e. I, I, that Isaac will marry within the faith, even though, as I said, uh, as to his knowledge, the people back there are not believers yet. Uh, the second thing is that you remember that in Genesis chapter nine, after uh, Noah, Noah and his sons came out of the ark. And they had that incident where Noah got drunk. You remember what happened with his sons there? Okay, there was a curse. Uh, uh, There was a curse pronounced on the descendants of Ham. Okay, specifically who? His son Canaan, right? Okay, so there was a curse pronounced on Canaan. And so... As Abraham now is seeking to find a wife for Isaac, he's remembering not only the importance of marrying within the righteous line, but he's also remembering that that the Lord has has made a distinction through his ancestor Noah between the descendants of Shem, of whom Abraham is one, and his brothers are also, and the descendants of Canaan, among whom, of course, are the Canaanites. Now, he has a promise that God is going to give to him the entire land of the Canaanites. Now, he doesn't know how that's going to transpire, but he can probably deduce that this may not be a pretty scene when it happens. 
And it would be highly inconvenient for one of his descendants to be a Canaanite. That could really mess things up because they're part of the curse. Okay? And so, to Abraham, it's extremely important that Isaac marry within the righteous line. Okay. And remember, uh, as we stipulate, as we've gone all the way through Genesis, when I talk about the righteous line, that doesn't imply that everybody in the righteous line is righteous. But it is that line through which God purposes to fulfill his plan of redemption for mankind. Okay. Now, as I pointed out in Genesis 6, when we were in Genesis 6 and we looked at that judgment of the flood on the nations and on the world, one of the causes of that was the intermarriage of the people, the sons of God, with the daughters of men. We talked all about that clear back then. If, if you want to review that or whatever, you can go back and listen to the, uh, the recording on the Internet. It's back there and you can uh, dig it out. It's the first couple, three verses of Genesis chapter 6 where we talked about that and you can refresh that in your mind. But, but the point that we made at that point is that at that point, in Genesis 6, a theme begins to develop, a thread begins to develop that is woven all the way through Scripture then and into the New Testament that believers do not marry outside of the faith. It's just absolutely a cardinal rule. Okay? It's just absolutely a cardinal rule that believers don't marry outside of the faith. It's prohibited in the Old Testament. It's prohibited with Israel under the law. And it's prohibited in the New Testament. And oftentimes, young people in the heat of passion or whatever, they think that somehow there's an exception written in the Scriptures for them, but there are no exceptions written for us. This is something that's important to God. And Abraham understands that. And this theme, as I said, develops as we go through Scripture. Now, that's not to say that sometimes a believer doesn't, uh, might marry an unbeliever and sometimes good things happen. But that's the exception rather than the rule, and you can't count on that. We go, we, we determine what's right or wrong by what God says is right or wrong, not by the results that somebody might have had as an exception to the rule. Okay? Yes, Rick. Pardon? Yeah, yeah. 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 Good point. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, so Abraham's concern is that his son marry within the faith, okay, or within the righteous line. So he tells his servant, you go back and you find a woman and you bring her to my son. And then his servant raises this concern because his servant is smart, right? <laughs> okay, his servant, you know, this guy is in charge of everything that Abraham owns. So this is a guy who thinks ahead. He anticipates problems and solves them before he gets to them. That's the kind of guy this guy is. That's why he's in charge of everything Abraham has. So the first thing he does is he anticipates the problem. He's going to go to a foreign land. He's going to, he's going to find this woman. He's going to suggest to her that she leave her family and everything she know and that she go marry a complete stranger. And he thinks... Now, I don't know what her family is going to think about this, and I certainly don't know what she's going to think about this. You know? I mean, Abraham, you did this, but you're weird, okay? <laughs> okay? So, he anticipates, well, what if she's unwilling to come? Shall I take Isaac back there? And Abraham says, absolutely not. 
says it twice. Do not take my son back. Why? Okay. <laughs> it's not where home is. It's not where his land is. It's not where the promise is. It's not, the, it's not where the will of God is. This is the will of God for us. This is the will of God for me and this is the will of God for you as my son and this is for the will of God for my descendants that we have this land, that we live in this land, that we possess this land. And in, inter- interestingly enough, it is, it, is, uh, it is only by the direct, specific intervention of God that Jacob ever leaves the land of Egypt, the land of Israel to go to Egypt. He has to have a word from God that says, okay, it's okay for you to go to Egypt. So, so he's, not, he's not going to be allowed to take, uh, the servant is not going to be allowed to take uh, Isaac back to Peyton Haran if the, if the woman is unwilling to come, uh, come to the land of Canaan. Okay. So he's not to be allowed to take her back. And if the woman is unwilling to come, then what happens to the oath? He's released from the oath. Okay. In other words, he has no responsibility to find a wife for Isaac. Now, I want you to notice what's going on here. There's, there's two things, I think, that just really strike me here that come down to this issue of who do we marry? Who do our kids marry? Okay. And, and who do our grandkids marry? And the first thing is, you know, we don't have the kind of control anymore that Abraham had in his situation, okay? In our day and age, kids decide for themselves, generally speaking, okay? But it is our responsibility, as much as, with, as it lies within us, to ensure that our children marry within the faith. We must do whatever we can do within the defined limits that God has given to us to ensure that we have inculcated in our children the importance of marrying within the faith. But there's more than just that at stake. Do you notice that even as important it is that Isaac marry within the righteous line, that Abraham says, if you have to leave the promised land to marry within the righteous line, you don't go. What Abraham's saying at this point is, if she's unwilling to come, it's out of my hands. I can't control this. But whatever you do, do not take Isaac away from the promise of God. Do not take Isaac away from the will of God. And what strikes me about that is that it seems apparent from this example of Abraham and Isaac, it seems apparent that it's possible to be married within the faith, but outside of the will of God. And Abraham is not willing to tolerate either possibility. Abraham is not willing to tolerate the possibility of his son being married outside of the righteous line. Nor is he willing to tolerate the possibility that in order to marry within the, prom- within the righteous line, he would have to step outside of the land of promise and outside of the revealed will of God. 
So it's just it's not enough that that we say, well, I'm marrying a believer. It's not enough that our children say, well, he's a believer or she's a believer. It's not enough that our grandchildren say he's a believer or she's a believer. The question is, are our children walking in the land of promise? Are they walking by faith as aliens and strangers in the land of promise? And that, of course, is our first responsibility to bring them up there, to raise them up there. And then our second responsibility is, as much as it lies within our power, to train them and teach them that it's not enough to marry within the faith. If to marry within the faith means you have to step outside of walking by faith as an alien and a stranger in the land of promise, then you don't get married. Even to a believer. And you leave it up to God. Now that's pretty profound stuff, isn't it? And that's in some ways that's we might say, boy, that's hard, Rick. And it is hard. But what it communicates to us is how vitally important this thing of a righteous seed is to God. How much God cares about this area of a righteous seed, a righteous wine. And, you know, we, we all fail in many ways and we all come short in many ways. And some of us, you know, we think, man, I've really blown it in this area. You know? Well, the same grace of God that covers all my other failures covers my failures in this area too. But the question that I have at this point in my life is, what do I do at this point? How do I live my life at this point? What can I do at this point to ensure that my children or my grandchildren or the, peop- or the young people that I might have influence over, that I might be able to influence and direct and encourage to move in one direction or another. What, can I, what role can I play in ensuring that God's children marry within the faith and marry within the promise of God and marry within the will of God? And that is Abraham's concern. And he's willing, he's willing to set this whole issue of Isaac getting married aside. He knows he has a promise and he knows God will work it out. But, it, but at this point, he says, if you, if you can't find a wife, you're not going to find a wife from the Canaanites and you can't take him back there to find a wife. And so if you can't get one to come here, then, then there's nothing we can do about it. God's going to have to handle this thing completely. And that's what Abraham is saying. And so, the, so his servant swears the oath and then he takes all this stuff. He takes these camels and he takes all these goodies. You know, These aren't trinkets, okay? And when we, get to the, when we get further on the story, we'll see what some of these things are he took, okay? He took some pretty spectacular stuff. Why does he take all this stuff? Okay, part of it is, you know, he's got to he's got to have a purchase price. Okay, he's got to be able to buy this bride. Okay. Well, I was thinking, how does she know he's not just some big talker that's going to take her and her ride and uh, use her for a Yeah. Um. So he needed to have a lot of stuff in order for him. 
heard him say that he was from at least he had will. Yeah. Yeah, he has to be able to show. Yeah, he has to be able to show. He has to be able to show that he's not just blowing smoke, you know, that this guy she's going to marry isn't just back there flipping hamburgers at McDonald's, you know. This guy, you know, this guy's this guy's significant, okay. But there's really, it's really more than that. It's not just that he's rich but that he's blessed of God. And here's where this spectacular analogy begins to develop of a picture of what it means to communicate the gospel of Christ to a lost world. Because here we see an analogy where where Abraham is the father and Isaac is the only begotten son, the bridegroom. The servant is the evangelist. And Rebecca is, is, is the object of his desire. And the one whom he's seeking to bring and, and, and wed to the bridegroom. And she must be convinced of the greatness of the father and the greatness of the bridegroom. And one of the servant's jobs is to convince Rebecca so that she really can make a decision a wise decision based on faith, his, what he has to do is he has to convince her of the greatness of the Father and the greatness of the Bridegroom who, who is standing there waiting. And this picture of, of communicating the Gospel to a lost world will unfold more as we go through this chapter and it's spectacular. And then when you see Rebecca's response, it just, I, I don't know, it just, sends chills down my spine when I see Rebecca's response in, in spite of the influences of her family around her that she chooses to go back. But she chooses to go back because she believes what the servant has told her and what the servant has showed her about the bridegroom and about the bridegroom's father. And so her obje- his objective is to show to her the glory of Abraham and that the blessing of God is on Abraham. And, and, you know, I, I don't know this for certain, but I've got a pretty good hunch they haven't heard from Abraham in 50 years. He's just that crazy uncle who went traipsing off on a dream, on a vision. And they haven't heard from him in 50 years. And all of a sudden, this guy shows up. And he says, look what God has done to this man. And look what God has done for this man. And he wants you to marry his son. And so he gets there and he prays. Well, we're out of time, so we don't have time to look at his prayer, but that's okay because it ties in right away with the answer to his prayer that comes immediately on the heels of his prayer. So next week, we'll look at that and we'll go on into the next part of the story.